I would love for us to turn to Haggai chapter 2. And um, we will close the series out today on uh, the quick series, huh? On the book of Haggai with verses 20 through 23. Just a short few verses. And so I think uh, we can certainly read those together as is often our custom. And so let's, let's do that today. Haggai chapter 2, verse 20. And let's begin. The word of the Lord came a second time to Haggai on the 24th day of the month. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I am about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down, every one by the sword of his brother. On that day, declares the Lord of hosts, I will take you, O Zerubbabel, my servant, the son of Shealtiel, declares the Lord, and make you like a signet ring, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord of hosts. Gracious God, rule over your people by your word today. And may we respond as exiles building your church. Amen. So this, as I've already mentioned, is the fourth and final prophecy in the text. The, the Haggai revolves around four prophecies, and this is the fourth one. And you may have noticed, uh, as we read, that this prophecy was given on the same day, December 18th, 520, as the previous prophecy Dale spoke about last last week. That, that, is, that is where we are. There was a little mix-up today in uh, uh, the, the singing arrangements, the worship uh, leading arrangements, but providentially we sang just a few moments ago, pardon for sin and a peace that assureth thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And as I read and studied this text this week, those, those words, especially strength for today and, and bright hope for tomorrow from that well-beloved song that we sang a moment ago, Great is Thy Faithfulness. It just kept rattling around in the space that I have in my mind. Here are... Here, as we have seen throughout the book of Haggai, here were a group of exiles who have been rebuked for their misplaced priorities. They are discouraged because their work had not turned out as grand as they had hoped. They were defiled because of their sin. And the nations that surrounded them were hostile to them, not to mention that they were under the governance of the Persians, a wicked and vile nation. However, the faithfulness of God comes to His covenant people, comes gloriously, brilliantly, beautifully, powerfully, shining through the text of, in Haggai again as 
we see God strengthening, strengthening the hands of the people to work by promising to intervene on their behalf and to establish a hopeful future for them. And we see this in the text uh, as God promises, first of all, to overthrow foreign kingdoms, and then second, to establish a ruler for his people. So the word of the Lord comes from the mouth of Haggai to Zerubbabel specifically, but also this would have been written down and would have been read by the people of God. But the hearts of the people of God and, and, and their ruler Zerubbabel, when they heard the words of the Lord from the mouth of Haggai, their hearts would have been made glad to hear such words as found in verses 21 and 22. They felt the weight of Persian oppression, the hostility of the nations surround them. We see that, we get a picture of that in the book of Haggai, or I'm sorry, Nehemiah, where there is uh, letters written and there's some confusion as to what their purposes are and the work on the wall ceases for a while and there is hostility all around them. But, but even more than that, verses 21 and 22 are full of descriptive phrases that we find in the Old Testament in reference to God casting down foreign kingdoms in judgment. And I want to read those again and see if you can pick up on some of those phrases. Speak to Zerubbabel, governor of Judah, saying, I'm about to shake the heavens and the earth and to overthrow the throne of kingdoms. I'm about to destroy the strength of the kingdoms of the nations and overthrow the chariots and their riders, and the horses and their riders shall go down, everyone by the sword of his brother. Did, did you hear some of the phraseology that we see throughout Scripture as it references God casting down foreign kingdoms? You may have seen that. Some of you may have. You may not have. Let me point out a few. Of course, I already mentioned in the sermon that I preached uh, the week before last covering uh, Haggai 2, 1 through 9, uh, about a cosmic shaking. And that is a reference to the Mosaic covenant or the covenant that was struck between God and His people at Sinai. Uh, so I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but there is obvious language there that would hearken God's people back to that moment in their history. But then there's a, a reference to overthrow, to the overthrow. And that word overthrow is important. The reference to the overthrow of thrones and kingdoms harkens back to Genesis, at least back to Genesis 19.25, when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding villages or towns. Uh, it says, Genesis 19.25 says, And he overthrew those cities, and all the valley, and all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. If you think I'm just proof texting that, uh, overthrow is a common way to describe what God did when he judged Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it in Isaiah 13.19, Jeremiah 20.16, Amos 4.11, Deuteronomy 29.23, where there is an overthrow that is specifically referencing what God did at Sodom and Gomorrah. He overthrew them. And so for God to promise that he would overthrow nations, there would have been a connection there. 
There's another phrase, and maybe even a, a more obvious one. I think that it's probably more uh, obvious uh, that is certain to have caused the Israelites to think of an important moment in their history. And that is the phrase, overthrow the chariots and their riders. And the horses and their riders shall go down. Does anybody know where that phrase comes from? It's, yes, the Red Sea. It is in the Song of Moses. These are, is, this is actually a, a recitation of the Song of Moses. Listen to a few, a few sections of the Song of Moses in Exodus 15. Verse 1, Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously the horse and his rider, he is thrown into the sea. Verse 4, Char Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. Verse 19 through 21, For when the horses of Pharaoh with his chariots and his horsemen went into the sea, the Lord, the Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them, but the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for He has triumphed gloriously. The horse and His rider, He is thrown into the sea. And this one probably would have been the most obvious, because Hebrew tradition tells us that a section of the Song of Moses was saying at the close of every Sabbath, they would sing through the Song of Moses in a, a, a succession of Sabbath days. And so these words would most likely have been fresh on their minds, these words of the Song of Moses. And allow me one more, if you will. Everyone by the sword of their brother. This is another descriptive way that God describes His deliverance of His people. The most prominent example is found in the story of Gideon. Look at Judges chapter 7, verses 19 through 22. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars they held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp and all the army ran. They cried out and fled when they blew the 300 trumpets. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against the army, against all the army. And the army fled as far as Bethshetah toward Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Malola by Tabith. So again, the sword of his or each man, the sword of his brother or his comrade was turned on one another, and the Lord wrought a great victory. And I am convinced that these references are not coincidental. As a matter of fact, I am in good commentator company. To, to, make this, to make this assumption. And I think it's easy for us to imagine this type of thing. Just, just think about it in our own context. What if I were to employ the phrase four score and seven years ago? 
you would immediately think of the Gettysburg Address, an important moment in the history of our nation. Or if I were to say, we hold these truths to be self-evident, then you would think about, uh, you would know that I was alluding to the Declaration of Independence. And these, these phrases are connected. The reason we recognize them is because this phraseology in particular is connected to important events in the history of our nation. And so it would have been with the Israelites. As a matter of fact, even more so, especially considering that their national identity was tied up with their religious identity. This would have been fresh on the minds of the people. They are intricately connected with each other. To speak of an overthrow or horses, chariots and riders being brought down or to speak of every man's, turn, man's sword rather turning against his fellow soldier would conjure memories in the Hebrew mind of times when God righteously judged wicked nations and overthrew them for the benefit of His covenant people. They would have thought about the Red Sea just even as we did. We thought about the Red Sea. They would have thought about the Red Sea. They would have thought about the Sinaitic Covenant. They would have thought about the victory with the few hundred men of Gideon. These phrases would have conjured this in their mind. God is doing something brilliant and beautiful here. He is using poetic imagery through the mouth of Haggai to give a brief history of His faithfulness to His people to remind them that He has been faithful in the past, even when His people were unfaithful, discouraged, and defiled. You remember how last week ended? Talked about their defilement, right? But there was a but there. And it says, but I will bless you. What, what, is that, what is that saying to us? God's faithfulness. What does that say about God's faithfulness? God is telling Zerubbabel and his people that he will overthrow nations for them and that this, they can be sure of this not because of their faithfulness, but because of his faithfulness. God was also giving them strength for the work at hand by promising to cast down the hostile nations. And you can be guaranteed that I will be your strength and I will be your protector because I have been your strength and your protector in the past. And then they say, but Lord, we are defiled for our sins. And then the Lord says, but it's, it, it's not about your faithfulness. It's about my faithfulness. You are defiled, but I will bless you. I will overthrow the nations around you. As a matter of fact, He was giving them strength for today by giving them hope for tomorrow. And that's how it works so often, isn't it? We, still, we feel strengthened for the work today because we know that there is a brighter future. We are strengthened for today by the hope for tomorrow. But God not only promises to overthrow nations on behalf of His people, He goes another step, a significant step. He promises to establish a ruler through the Davidic lineage for His people. I want to draw your attention again to the phraseology in this 
poetic, prophetic oracle is important. Draw your attention to that phrase, my servant. And this is the first time Zerubbabel is referenced in this way in the book of Haggai. The phrase is often used in in the Old Testament to refer to people God used for a special purpose. But that phrase also has a special designation for David as king. And it's used numerous times in reference to David. 2 Samuel 3.18, 1 Kings 11.13, 34, 36, 38, 2 Kings 19.34, 2 Kings 26, 1 Chronicles 17.4, Psalm 89.3, 20, Isaiah 37.35, I think you get the point. The phrase is not only used in reference to David, though it obviously is as the historical king, but I also want you to note that it is used of David or an eschatological David-like future king. A David-like figure. And that's in Ezekiel chapter 34, verses 23 through 24. And I will set up over them one shepherd, my servant David, and he shall feed them. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David shall be prince among them. I am the Lord, I have spoken. So Jeremiah lives after David, and he's talking about the establishment of the king who is referred to by God as my servant, David. So what's being done here? Well, at least what's being done in the book of Haggai through the prophetic words of Haggai is that God is communicating a reestablishment of the promised royal Davidic lineage. Zerubbabel is to be a ruler of God's people through the Davidic lineage. And he is, as a matter of fact, found in the lineage of Christ as, uh, as a part of that royal Davidic lineage. And then the next significant phrase, I think, presses that point even further that we will now consider. And that is the promise of God to make Zerubbabel like a signet ring. I will make you like a signet ring. Rings of this sort, they were worn mainly on the hand, and it could have been on the finger or around the hand. Sometimes I think that they were worn around the band of the arm from what I read, but, but mostly on the hand. And it was, in, it was a ring that was worn by a person in authority, or... It was worn by someone who could act on the authority of the owner of that ring. And we get that. You've probably heard that used uh, several times or heard that dealt with for those of you uh, who have been in church for a while. It was used, that ring was used to seal royal directives or legal documents. And so they would have pressed their seal into clay or something of that nature, some kind of malleable uh, material, so that when that document showed up, you knew that the authority of the person uh, that held that ring was behind that document. That, that's what's going on. And so what God is saying is that Zerubbabel would be the one who represented God's divine authority as God's chosen ruler. So what he is saying is, I will set you up to act 
in my authority. I have chosen you. I have declared that you are the ruler of my people. And so you are acting in my authority. And I think that's significant, but I think that there is more significance than that. Really difficult to recognize the significance of Zerubbabel becoming the signet ring in Haggai without understanding its usage previously. In Jeremiah 22, 24 through 26, I want you to notice this. As I live, declares the Lord, though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, were the signet ring on my right hand, yet I would tear you off and give you into the hand of those who seek your life, into the hand of those whom you are afraid, even into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. I will hurl you and the mother who bore you into another country where you were not born, and there you shall die. So this is reference to Jehoiakim, who was the last king of Judah, who was taken into Babylonian captivity by Nebuchadnezzar. He was the last direct descendant in the line of Davidic kings, and he was taken into captivity. And we can see in our minds that descriptive imagery used here. I I can almost see, I mean, you know, God is spirit, but I can almost see God tearing this signet ring, Jehoiakim, off of his hand and casting him into captivity, representing a rejection of the Davidic dynasty in Judah. And now with Zerubbabel, God says that He will take up that signet ring and He will place it back on His hand. And this is powerful because it represents a reversal of the prophecy in Jeremiah and a restoration to the royal Davidic lineage. This would have been exceptionally important to the people of God. The people who wondered if they had lost their national identity. A people who wondered if they had the presence of the Lord with them. A people who were discouraged in the work, who were defiled by their sin, who had been rejected by God, and now He is saying, I will put the signet ring back on my hand. Do you see how this would have been strength for today? And then bright hope for tomorrow for the covenant people of God? They're just a shell of of what the people of Israel were when they built the initial temple. They were building a temple, as has already been talked about, that was far less grand than the first one they they had built or had been built. And they were distracted by misplaced priorities. They were defiled by their sin. They had an unclear and unstable political identity and were surrounded by hostile nations who were opposed to their work and just opposed to them for being who they were. But God says He will sovereignly, and and let's not miss those underlying tones of God's sovereignty in the text where He says, I will shake the heavens and the earth. I will overthrow thrones and kingdoms. I will take my servant and make him a signet ring. I will do it, for I have chosen you, declares the Lord. Let's not miss that, those underlying tones of sovereignty. God says He will sovereignly overcome the nations and establish His ruler over 
his people. Zerubbabel must have felt strength to come into his soul because I'm certain that he had a difficult task as the governor of these people. He would have felt strength come into his soul to lead this difficult group of exiles when he heard the word from the Lord. When the people would have heard this oracle or if they would have read the oracle, they would have also been encouraged as well because they would have known that the Lord was with them and that the Lord would protect them while they were working to accomplish the task that the Lord had set before them. They would have been encouraged to know that the Lord had not rejected His people and that, they, that a, a, a ruler was being reestablished for them. And you may be thinking, thanks for the history lesson. Thanks for the nice lesson about the goodness of God, even as it relates to history. But, but what does that have to do with us and You'd be right to, to ask that question. What does those things have to do with us? But can I tell you that this story has more to do with us than we might initially think? Because I want us first to consider the striking parallels between those exiles who were commissioned to build the second temple and New Testament Christians. Are we not Exiles commissioned with the daunting task of building the temple of the Lord, the new covenant temple, Christ's church. And even more than that, like these exiles, are we not regularly distracted by misplaced priorities? Are we not regularly aware that we are defiled by our sins? Are we not often discouraged in the work that the Lord has called us to do? As a matter of fact, let me give you an example as an open way of confession. I was alone for a moment with a man yesterday who told me, I'm having one of the, I am at rather one of the lowest points of my life. It was just he and I. And I even sensed a a touch of the Spirit's prompting to say, pray with this man and share the gospel with this man. The obvious conclusion, the obvious opportunity that I had as a preacher of the gospel. And you know what I did? I squandered that opportunity. I refused in my own vile sin. Let me say this, I hated that man at that moment because the only thing that could offer hope for his soul, I refused to give him. Because I am defiled by my sin. Do you understand? I am like an exile. There was my moment to lay another brick. There was my no moment to drive another nail. There was my moment to do the very thing that God had commissioned me to do, but like an exile that is defiled by sin, I placed priority elsewhere, and I did not accomplish the task. For that I am ashamed. But that is where we are. We're surrounded with all sorts of people 
who are hostile to our cause. We are even surrounded in an increasing manner, it seems, with people in high positions of authority who can and have passed laws that seem to hinder our work. But why didn't I give up? Why, do, why am I still up here confessing that I failed to share the gospel? And why do I have hope that when another opportunity arises that I will share the gospel? Why do I have strength and hope to continue the work? It's because God is faithful to His covenant people. That's why I have strength. That's why I have hope. Just as He was faithful to His old covenant people, so we can be sure He will be faithful to us, His new covenant people. As a matter of fact, His faithfulness has already been demonstrated to us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And God's faithfulness to me is not relying on my faithfulness to Him, but on what Christ has faithfully executed for me as a new covenant believer. But I want to take it one step further. And I alluded to this in the sermon before last, but did you know that Haggai's prophecy did not find full fulfillment in the person of Zerubbabel? Zerubbabel did not usher in a restoration of the Davidic monarchy that was, that was accompanied with an overthrow of all the surrounding nations. Actually, not long after this prophecy was given, Zerubbabel seems to have dropped off into historical obscurity. Uh-oh. Did Haggai's prophecy fail? Is the Word of God untrue? Can we rely on the promises of God as they are inscripturated? On the contrary, Haggai's prophecy succeeded it did not fail, but it succeeded in a way he, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the exiles, or anyone else could have ever dreamed possible. Because Zerubbabel, like David, represented a royal figure in the Davidic line who would transcend the historical figures like David and Zerubbabel. You know who we're talking about. We're talking about a greater than Zerubbabel. We're talking about a greater than David. We're speaking of the Lord Jesus Himself. All the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. If you don't, if you don't remember anything else that I say in this sermon, remember that, that all the promises of God find their fulfillment in Christ. Jesus came as God in the flesh through the lineage of David with the authority of God. Signet ring. At the cross, He cast down the rulers of this world. John 12, 31. He disarmed rulers and authorities, triumphing over them and putting them to open shame. Colossians 2, 15. God then raised Him from the dead and bestowed upon Him a name above every name so that at His name every knee would bow in heaven, earth, and under the earth. And every tongue confess Jesus as sovereign Lord of all. Philippians 2, 9-10. through 10. So Jesus overthrew not 
wicked kings, but the wicked one himself. Not just wicked kingdoms, but Jesus overthrew the very dominion of darkness. And just prior to His ascension, He gave His people a royal directive to preach the gospel to every creature. To make disciples in every nation. And then He accompanied that promise with the promise, or the directive rather, with the promise of His divine presence. I am with you. I hope you're seeing the parallel here. We are, the, we are much like the exiles with a king who God has established over us. That king is Jesus. And we have been promised that he will come again. And that there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Where his people from all ages and all places fellowship with Christ without sin in his unbroken and unhindered presence. So here we are as exiles in the midst of a hostile environment. But we have strength for today, don't we? And we have hope for tomorrow, don't we? Because Jesus is our King. And all His promises are true. God has established Jesus as King over His covenant people forever. It is that eschatological hope that encourages us and emboldens us to labor diligently in the work God has called us to in the present. So what do we do? What do we do then? Let me tell you something you can do. An action you can take. Look to Christ. You may say, that's not anything. Look to Christ? That's not an action I can take. But beloved, if I could only get you to catch a glimpse of Christ's glory. If, if I could only get you to savor a small portion of what Christ has accomplished and what will be fully realized. If you could just taste us a little bit of that. If you could only... Behold Christ in every one of your life's situations. There is no limit to the work that could be accomplished. I mean, listen, I know that this is probably a base illustration for, uh, for some uh, transcendent point that I'm trying to prove here. But we are doing it right now. Right? All of the, all of the dog fans around, they have bright, they have Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Right? They're looking unto the dogs. Look at how, look at how good the dogs are doing. Look at, look at how good our dogs are. Man, think about how good. And I mean, you can you see it on uh, you know, Facebook posts. Go dogs. And you know, wondering if they would beat Tennessee, but they, they whipped Tennessee and said, oh man, you know, and just all of these kinds of things they can't help but think about and talk about and be encouraged by the way the dogs are doing. And some of y'all are looking at me crazy, but it could have been said of the Gators in the 90s. But, and the Knowles in the 90s. But we're, you know, we're just, uh, we're just enamored, or these folks are enamored because they have caught a glimpse of their great George Bulldogs. 
right? And I, and, I, and I mean, I know it's a goofy illustration, but, but so it is. The reason people are talking about it and the reason people are thinking about it and the reason people are making fo- uh, Facebook posts about it is because they are enamored with it. Boy, if I could get you enamored with Jesus. You'd make Facebook posts about it. You'd talk about it all the time. You'd be encouraged by how well the kingdom is doing. Isn't that right? I mean, this all you could talk about. Because if you could just catch a glimpse of Christ and who He is and the hope of what He has accomplished at Calvary, it's all you could think about. It's all you would talk about. Folks, to know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to serve Him. Do not overlook knowing Jesus Christ. (laughs) Do Do not overlook the power of that. Yes, there are actions to take, but if you are only taking actions without catching a glimpse of Jesus Christ, it basically boils down to legalism. Because water works without what Christ has accomplished for us. Our works are in light of that. We have fallen in love with Jesus. And now we want to do it. For instance, use my illustration. I mean, I felt so stupid yesterday. Pardon my French. But I felt so goofy for not sharing the gospel with that dude when I had such an obvious opportunity. Right? And, and 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 if my salvation or... If even God's pleasure with me was dependent on what I had done at that moment, I would have called down and been like, dude, I can't, even, I can't preach the gospel one-on-one to a man in the, sitting in, the, uh, uh, in his vehicle with him. Much, much less preach the gospel to a company of God's people. Forget it. I'm out. But, but God's pleasure with me is not dependent on my works, is it? It's dependent on Jesus Christ. Now, how in the world would I know that? It's because I have beheld Him dying on the cross for me. It's because I have seen Him in His glory. That is why I can work. And that's why I can confess. That's why I can fail and confess and move on. It's because in some small way, I know the Lord. Do not discount the impact of knowing the Lord and the impact that it has on your working for Him. To know Him is to love Him. And to love Him is to serve Him. But you cannot serve Him without loving Him. And you cannot know Him without, or love Him without knowing Him. So we work and serve, looking unto Jesus and our hope in Him. In the days of Solomon, God put His Spirit in people to build the temple. In the days of Haggai as well. And so the Lord has placed His Spirit in every believer. And He has gifted us in a variety of ways to serve the church and to build up His kingdom. 
We try not to become distracted by misplaced priorities, but we always strive to put God at the center of everything we, re- we do. We repent and confess our sins to God. And if necessary, we confess our sins to one another. We look ahead in anticipation when the Lord shall return and bring full realization and consummation to the kingdom He has placed us in and He has gifted us to work in and build up. Because of who Jesus is, we have strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. He is our King and we are His people. Thank you, God. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Through no goodness of our own, through no acts of righteousness, through no works we have done, You have redeemed us. You have called us out of bondage and slavery. And Lord, you have cast down the dominion of darkness. You have cast down the wicked one as you cast down Pharaoh's army in the sea. You have overthrown the dominions of darkness, Lord, that would overtake us and would overtake the work that you have called us to do. Lord, you have confused and confounded rulers and principalities. Swords have been turned on each of them, by each of them. Lord, you have set up a ruler over us who has established His kingdom forever. There is no end to this kingdom. It's it's here, Lord. We We are ambassadors in this kingdom. It is a real kingdom. And yet, Lord, it is not fully realized. And so as we labor in this kingdom, as we war in this fight that You have already won, Lord, we anticipate a glorious day. Even, Lord, as our question and answer section says, when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we are are thinking of a feast that is ahead, Lord, and we are rejoicing in that. We are singing as we work. We are singing as we war, Lord, because our King is established forever. And we praise You for it. And Lord, let this not just be something that slips in our ears and in our minds and we say oh yes that's nice we should do more for you but quicken it to our hearts quicken it to our beings Lord and let it not be an excuse oh yes I'm looking to Jesus but Lord let it be a quickening for us to labor I am laboring because I am looking to Jesus I am warring because my king is victorious I am building because my King has accomplished the work. Lord, it gives us humility, but it gives us great and triumphant hope to carry on the work that you have called us to do. May it be so in the name of Jesus, we pray. And the church says, Amen. 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 Grace and peace to you.